You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. All right, Robert, good to talk to you. Hey, Dom. So I wanted to um, talk about the progress movement and sort of how ingenuism fits into that because I think there's just a lot of really exciting stuff going on and I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of where we overlap, where we're doing something different, but just to give people a little bit of context. So what I'm calling the progress movement is really kind of the a concentration of a bunch of things that were going on over the last 10 or 15 years with roots that go back much further. But, you know, over the last, let's call it 10 years, you had many books talking about the importance of progress and kind of the state of progress. And so, I mean, you could think of um, Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist, Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Um, I worked with a guy named Alex Epstein, who was talking a lot about the kind of history of progress and energy. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey in more academic side wrote a series, the Bourgeois Trilogy, which was really investigating the historical causes of progress. And then you can just think a lot of the activities of people in Silicon Valley, thinking uh, not just building companies, but thinking explicitly about what should the future look like and how can we create it. And then I think there's also roots in the rationalist community. But it really kind of came to fruition in 2019 when Tyler Cowen, the economist at George Mason, who was a guest on an interview show that we did, and then Patrick Collison of Stripe wrote a piece for The Atlantic um, making the case for a new field of studies that they call progress studies. And I just wanted to give you a flavor of what's in the article and give that to people who haven't read it, but it's definitely worth reading in in uh, full. But basically, their their major claim is that, as they put it, there's no broad-based intellectual movement focused on understanding the dynamics of progress or targeting the deeper goal of speeding it up. We believe that this deserves a dedicated field of study, and so they're suggesting progress studies. And one of the reasons why is, you know, they point to there's been these places throughout history like ancient Greece, Renaissance Florence, Northern England during the Industrial Revolution and Silicon Valley today where you get far more progress, far more technology, far more intellectual growth than in other times and other places. And so they say these kinds of examples show how there can be ecosystems that are better at generating progress than others, perhaps by orders of magnitude. But what do they have in common? And then there's a bunch of questions they think are tied into that. And they also say that there's kind of wider questions we could be asking about um, how do you identify and train brilliant young people, how the most effective small groups exchange and share ideas, which incentives should exist for all sorts of participants in innovative ecosystems, and so on. And then finally, the point they make that I thought was really interesting is that um, this that progress studies should be closer to medicine than biology. 
it's not merely to understand progress, but it's to actually treat. It's how do we get more of it? How do we get more of it widespread and how do we get it faster? So there's a lot I want to dip into uh, there and with what's going on in the progress movement more broadly. But any reactions so far just on um, the progress movement itself? And then later we can come to how ingenuism fits. Well, there's a lot in there. Uh, and I think that it's really, I mean, it's illustrative that these efforts are coming out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and it it speaks to a desire to uh, formalize those those magic ingredients that have created so much wealth and so much dynamism and so much uh, innovation in Silicon Valley and of course in other areas currently and in a lot of other areas historically. Uh, but I, what really impresses me is that it comes out as questions as opposed to answers. Uh, usually people ask questions so they can then tell you what their answer is uh, versus these are deep questions. They're going to be very difficult to answer. I personally think we're never going to answer them in any satisfying way and that that is absolutely fine. In fact, maybe satisfying is the right word because it could be completely satisfying to make progress on all of these questions and to glean insights and to come up with some uh, policy standards, best practices, uh, commitments, things that would really make a difference that would compound over the years. But for two really smart, really successful guys to not try and stake out here's what the answer is going to look like and instead pose this as some important questions. I think it's it's really impressive, but it's also bodes really well for that side of the movement. And it's not when you hear about uh, people looking at progress, it's not consistently uh, people avoiding putting a firm stake in the ground and claiming this is what the future is going to look like. And so to see that beginning to emerge, I think, is really important. Yeah, I mean, part of it is, like, what level of abstraction are you analyzing things on? Because I think you could come to kind of a satisfactory consensus about, um, and if not consensus, at least a satisfactory conclusion that, you know, the evidence would draw about, all right, look, there's certain fundamentals of progress, like, Look, you're not going to have a totalitarian society that's going to have a lot of progress. You're not going to have a prog. You're not going to have progress if science is regarded as you know a a as witchcraft or something like that. So there's certain kind of basic fundamentals, but because the world is constantly changing, you know, one of the themes that we keep coming to is that um, as the world becomes more connected, that kind of changes and overall for the better some of the dynamics of progress so um the evolving circumstances lead to like evolving factors and certainly we learn more about these different areas but the the part of what i think makes the progress movement interesting and exciting is because it's it is getting agreement not on these kind of what is it that drives progress it's more this is a value we should understand and promote it and then you get a lot of different thinkers a lot of different uh creators coming from a lot of different backgrounds and sort of trying to hash out those questions as against what typically happens which is movements are sort of based around 
like little you know ideological tribes of oh we're the socialized medicine movement or you know we're the um you know what's the you know we're the climate movement which has embraced a definite view of how you should solve that problem right it's it's not kind of here's a wide open view and you have your free market approach and we have our takeaway energy approach but whereas the progress movement seems to cut across a lot of those ideological lines and kind of get the shared agreement that it's really good if we grow knowledge and technology and health and things a lot faster than we are and then you can kind of bring to bear all sorts of knowledge and expertise from across the spectrum of human beings on this planet to kind of answer those questions. Yeah, it's it's hard to stay at the uh, foundational level. Uh, it's because we have we all have strong opinions, and it, if you talk about things more generally, you risk that whatever it is that you are advocating is then going to be taken up and used by you know who you might view as the other side. Uh, plus, concrete examples appeal to us. So you know, I'm going to push back on totalitarianism. Uh, I am not a fan of totalitarianism. Uh, it's shown to be tragic and um, hugely damaging to people at a large level. But you could argue, depending on how you want to use the word, that uh, Steve Jobs was a totalitarian at Apple. And when he got less so when he got to be a soft totalitarian, Apple really thrived. Uh, in small groups, you know, there's, there's the potential that having one person in charge and dictating everything, but being willing to listen and, and to uh, give other people some freedom to, to uh, advocate for a particular goal, but maybe not all the details, that that can work really well. So as soon as we get into firm examples, and I'm certainly not arguing uh, against your claim, but we, we suddenly end up debating, okay, well, what are the counterexamples? What do we actually mean by that? And we our focus narrows very quickly uh, versus if you're looking at, okay, what are the things that are going to support everything that you know, any human being, any reasonable human being, and my definition is reasonable as a human being who loves human beings, uh, that any reasonable human being would be able to embrace and use to accomplish their goals. And that's what progress really is. It's, it can be technology. Uh, I certainly believe that. Uh, it could be longevity. I certainly believe that. But those are just two dimensions of things that make the world a better place for people. Well, and that kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to focus on, which is just the diversity of what people sort of within the general umbrella of the progress movement are focused on. And so, I mean, I'll just rat off a few things that occur to me off the top of my head, and I'm sure I'm living, leaving people out and putting some people in a little bit more of a box than they deserve to be. But if I think about like people like McCloskey, uh, or Matt Ridley or Jason Crawford, a lot of what they're shining light on is the history of progress and how do we understand what led to the Industrial Revolution and this just, in you know, historically unprecedented explosion of progress um, in you know starting in the late 18th century. Then, if you think about um, people like Steven Pinker or Alex Epstein or Johann Norberg uh, or even the economist Noah Smith, a lot of what they've talked about is sort of the value of progress because there is um you, you had that great comment about uh 
like human beings who love human beings is you know the standard reasonable human beings but unfortunately that's not like a universal we have like a a real no growth movement and then elements of that in people's thinking who wouldn't view themselves as anti-growth but who are skeptical of progress in various ways and so they've really spearheaded this discussion of why we should appreciate progress and really take seriously what's needed to drive it forward and then if you think about let you know people like uh cowan or teal or matt clancy a lot of what they've written about is try to investigate the current state of progress and including like matt clancy has done some cool stuff trying to look at individual fields and how do we judge where there's progress and how it's playing out um, we interviewed uh, James Pethokoukis, and he talked a lot about progress in policy, and I think there's other people who are focused on it primarily for, through a policy lens of, all right, given that we want progress, what kinds of government um, laws, regulations, programs actually support it, and which kind hinder it back? And I, I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of stuff out, but that's just kind of to indicate the diversity of it. And so one thing I would, so this kind of gets to the question that I've mentioned a few times here, which is how do you think object, uh, ingenuism fits in to that? In what way is it um, doing something similar or different to what other people in the field are doing? Well, I think it's really cool how across the field you have people focused on different areas because you know, we, we may write sometimes or speak sometimes like ingenuism is the truth, but we don't actually think that. We think ingenuism is a, a really useful and valuable framework for viewing the world and making policy, making decisions. If you're starting a company or running a company, making decisions uh, for investing your portfolio, making decisions for living your life. Uh, but it's just one dimension of these interesting different ways that you can look at progress. And so what we have really f honed in on is the impact of people being connected and of the ability to learn as we do more and more interesting things in the world of that just naturally giving birth to people having new ideas, having new insights, and having the, the opportunity to innovate and to really boost progress. And that, that environment, that ecosystem would be a, a positive feedback system where as you're doing more, you accomplish more, you have more opportunity to innovate, which drives progress. And if progress is feeding, learning is feeding uh, progress, then the world gets better really, really quickly. And we have reason to believe this is particularly important today and has been for the last 20 or 25 years because of the mass increase in connection across people that the internet has brought. And that's not to, say, to take anything away from the connection in the physical world, which has led to enormous gains from trade and uh, specialization and division of labor. And that, that has been huge. Uh, but intellectual connection is a, a little bit of a different animal. Uh, you can have it without needing to have containers you know, running across the ocean or having really diverse or sophisticated supply chains. They're complementary to each other, but you can get vast benefits just by having intellectual connection. And that was that's been possible since, say, the telegraph, but it really took off with first the, the telephone, particularly when you you got direct dial long distance, but 
having the ability to connect on the internet to have everyone be able to see and and consume other people's ideas and then of course today uh, you're in Michigan I'm in Puerto Rico but I see you you see me and, and we're talking to anyone on the planet who's interested in listening you know that's really amazing and in our framework it, it very quickly becomes obvious that that is a magnifying glass on the ability for people to benefit from this kind of learning that we're talking about the kind of learning that isn't just you know as you're using your kid's stroller you think wow wouldn't it be nice if there were a a clip here that would keep it folded up so that it would not unfold when I take it out of the trunk or that's a small example but I think you pointed me at a couple months ago a woman who invented a little tether that would keep the sippy cup on the high chair so when the toddler throws it off you know 743 times a day it doesn't end up on the floor it ends up dangling six inches below the tray and and they could actually learn to pull it back up themselves you know those kind of things are important but uh, they are and, and there are a lot of them so they add up but there are really big innovations that happen as people are working on things and learning that then spread very quickly. You know, the classic example is the Google search algorithm, uh, which the founders of Google did not set out to invent when they began their PhD program, but it happened because they were doing interesting uh, work, they were well-trained, and uh, they were looking at a particular project of library search that they recognized could obviously apply to this really what seemed to be a thorny problem but ended up having a very very elegant and powerful solution across the entire internet you know SpaceX launching rocket after rocket in order to learn enough to make the crash worthwhile uh, even uh, people who are in, not intending to crash and learn uh, but they're still going to do it sometimes which you could say is the entirety of Silicon Valley uh, but you know, companies like Amazon that introduce new products, see how they, they work and then either improve them so they can be successful or ditch them if, if they're not sufficiently um, embraced by customers at that first iteration. So having all of that learning going on is incredibly impactful even when it's compartmentalized, but when the lessons, both positive and negative, are pretty much instantly available to the world, you see all of the positive innovations uh, being adapted almost instantly globally. You see you know, Uber becoming successful in the United States and suddenly there's an Uber in every country. The same thing happened uh, a decade earlier with eBay and the same thing will happen with the next big innovation. As soon as it shows its potential somewhere on the planet, it'll be everywhere. And that's new. That used to take decades for uh, innovations and ideas to diffuse around the, the world. And now it's virtually instantly. So ingenuism is staking out the connection and learning piece of the progress uh, universe. But that doesn't make the other pieces less important. It just is saying the, these are two things that we think are essential ingredients of progress. And so we end up, uh, belittling is too strong a word, but downplaying the role of investment and investment in basic research. And, and that stems from 
our framework for the world, but it's also that you know in the financial economics uh, world as opposed to the economics world, we're much more skeptical about investment and, and doing everything you can to increase investment because you know in our models, the how you invest and what you invest in is way more important than the amount you invest. And so just funding basic research, which is a model for progress, uh, it's not very appealing to me, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at it, we shouldn't be exploring it, and that it doesn't complement well, what our primary focus is here at Ingenuism. Well, that gets to, I mean, part of what I find so valuable about the framework is precisely that the kind of pieces of the puzzle it looks at run through, um, run through different levels, right? So if we're focused on connection, learning, and an environment that is either fostering or hindering your ability to learn, connect, and create, explore. To the You can think about that at sort of the political like country level. Um, and, and that tends to be very policy-oriented, though not exclusively. Um, but that you can see the same factors at... Uh, you know, higher and higher levels of resolution. So like the same forces that are driving, whether the United States is going to be very, um, is going to move very fast forward, very far. If it's going to have a lot of progress and growth, you're going to see the sim similar forces playing out in similar ways at, let's call it, you know, a local level. So if you think about a place like Silicon Valley, it's taking what makes America work, but it's in a really concentrated form here. And then you can see it also play out at the firm level all the way down to the individual level. And and I think what that allows, that actually goes to a point that Collison and Cowan made that I only uh, kind of went past really quickly, which is that the that progress studies isn't just focused on one of those layers. It's trying to bring together all of this really great work that's been done on you know, management theory and what actually allows firms to succeed or fail to, you know, economics. And, you know, I think all the way down to the level of like self-help, right? It's bringing all these insights and threads together in a way that um, it helps get a much richer picture of what drives progress. And in, in that sense, far from pushing aside the contributions other approaches make it's helping kind of thread them together at least in my mind i feel it i'm really able to integrate stuff that i'm learning from all sorts of places that before were just okay if i'm thinking about business this is how to run a business if i'm thinking about progress here's you know some um, political insights and you know if i'm thinking about um how to make my career more effective here's you know some books on that and it's it's bringing them together in a way that i find really clarifying and generative of new questions and hopefully new insights. Yeah, it's, it was really exciting for me when we first started looking at this to see it as very fractal, to, to have it look the same whether we were zoomed in or we were zoomed out. And I think it, it really goes down to the full, you know, the fractal in theory goes down to the microscopic level. And I think it really, it does. I don't know what the analogy is for uh, microscopic here, but if, if you're thinking about the individual and how you live your life and uh, self-help, okay, well, let's narrow it down again. Let's, let's think about elementary education. And basically all the principles apply. 
if you want to have effective elementary education, then you're going to be building on connection and exploration, discovery, and creating an environment that uh, allows for these things and for the students to learn from each other, not to to be like everything that happens is in this classroom and and um, our experience is limited to this small group. Uh, but it, then it goes, it even goes down further. Like if you think about what am I going to, what is my afternoon going to be like? There's the ability to apply the same principles. And I don't want to oversell it. It, it just, I'm uh, aligned with you that that's one of the things that got me excited about working on ingenuism is that we could uh, be coming up with a conversation that would impact the world at basically every level. And it's not shocking because we're interested in human beings and human organizations and that the same principles might apply across the spectrum of, of the different levels of human beings and, and organizations. It's not shocking, but it's not always the case. And I hadn't really recognized that till we got started here. There's um, another facet of the movement that I've written a few times about in our newsletter, but I think is really makes it if not unique exactly at least uh it's unusual and that is kind of the concern for practical solutions and implementation of these ideas and so this goes to count and collison's point about this is more medicine than biology right like the it's very common that you get uh movements that say all right we need to convince people to adopt our policies or some movements that say we need to force people to adopt our policies. And uh, I think there's definitely a place for persuasion and trying to win over, you know, votes and things that I don't want to diminish that, but it's really powerful when you can just say, Hey, this is a good idea. Let's go implement it ourselves. And so if you take something like um, Cowan's emergent ventures, which was, all right, we don't think that um, research is being funded in an optimal way in the sciences. So we're just going to start funding it in a way that we think is better and see what happens and what we can learn from it. And in, and a lot of um, uh, people in the progress movement have started these kind of new approaches to funding. Then if you think about, I mean, so many of the people are kind of have one foot in the intellectual side of the progress movement, but many of them are practitioners in Silicon Valley of okay, I want to invent things that are going to make the future better. And, you know, one area, and so um, when you think about sort of practical implementations for ingenuism, and we don't have them worked out yet, but I think we're all, we all have a broad agreement that like this should ultimately lead to practical advice at, you know, different levels. Uh, and, how, you know, how do you think about that? And do you have in mind so far, like any practical use cases? Well, I think that, uh, that it's really important. I like the medicine biology, although I, I, I'd like to think about an analogy that communicates another dimension on that because, uh, from a, when you implement something practical, uh, first of all, you have different commitments and you're focused on getting something that adds value versus uh, pursuit of perfection. You know, you don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and you don't assume, you don't try and get the right answer before you do anything and you don't assume that once you get something that works that that's the right answer. It, it's always viewed as a step along a path of 
improving practice. And it's also very empirical. Uh, when you are doing something practical, you have particular goals it, it, which are lend themselves to having measurements that you can use then to evaluate. You know, a couple times when you were talking there, you you said you know, emergent measures. You alter how things are funded, and you learn from that. And the and learn from that is the biggest distinction uh, between practical and not practical, or theoretical in my mind. And there's nothing wrong with theory. And I I don't like biology on the other side of medicine so much because a lot of biology is very practical and meant to be applied, if if not directly to medicine, to some benefit to humanity that is def- well-defined and measurable. Uh, so as far as ingenuism is concerned, uh, because we're looking at it with, at the, with a very foundational approach, it is something that, that we're going to have to focus on. You know, how do we have this really make a difference for, uh, in, in an ideal world, it would be for policy, for how people run companies, for how entrepreneurs think when they're starting companies, how investors relate to uh, opportunities both as in startup companies and also in larger, more established companies, how people structure their lives, how they make decisions, and it would continue all the way down to you know what how do what do we do this afternoon? Uh, that is that's really important and. For from our perspective, I think it's probably uh, it's the overlap of ingenuism and finance, because finance is our background. So uh, we're right now looking at you know if ingenuism is, is capturing a magnifying glass that is illustrative of how Apple has become a three trillion dollar company because. 20 years ago, Apple was a $7 billion company. From $7 billion to $3 trillion in, in 20 years is something that we've never seen before. So if, if you're looking at how does that happen, then you can get interested in... Uh, and, and, of course, Apple wasn't a startup. Apple was founded in the 70s, so this isn't something where the massive burst in wealth creation was because they were starting from zero. Uh, once you start looking at that question, then you're moving into how do we allocate resources. And of course, in ingenuism, when we say we, we mean each individual because uh, in the ingenuism framework, you're learning by experimentation. You're not uh, having a central committee or a panel of experts or any limited number of people uh, making the decisions. You have a dynamic um, and evolving sort of center of gravity around the investment decision. So today maybe it's Silicon Valley, but in 20 years, maybe it's not the venture community in Silicon Valley. Maybe we've actually evolved into something better. So that's where I see ingenuism going. And if you can, you know, we talk about progress, we've written about how you know, 4% growth uh, would change the world uh, versus the, the kind of growth that we've had over the last 50 years uh, in the same way if we could increase the efficacy of investment in future projects which is basically capital allocation if we could start better companies if we could allocate resources to the uh, handful of crypto projects that are going to change the world and avoid the the thousands that are going to crash and burn uh, that would be really valuable. And we're never going to have a perfect crystal ball where we'll have figured out 
um, how to avoid the losers in this process of exploring, trying really ambitious things, and uh, learning from that and coalescing around the things that work. Uh, but if we could cut out a half of what we're doing that really doesn't have a chance of working, we just don't know that yet, uh, and we uh, channel that money towards something that has a, a better chance of making a big difference and being impactful going forward, it compounds dramatically over the years. So that's where I see us going. So it's not the ingenuism coin and NFT collection coming to you tomorrow? Well, I'm not ruling anything out. I'm not ruling anything out, Don. But uh, that, I know you're joking, but that, that, would be, uh, that would be really an interesting project to work on. It's just not one I'm prepared to start right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the one of the early pieces we wrote um, was about kind of the value of bubbles and how, like, I think it's safe to say a lot of what's going on in that space today won't work out. But what's exciting is, well, what emerges from it that ends up being really cool? And then I take what you said before is the better we can get at kind of figuring that out in the front end or at least figuring out more of the losers in the front end. Um, you know, that just makes things happen a lot faster and a lot uh, with a lot less downside, you know, in the short term. Um, exactly. So, so uh, that's it for this week. Be sure to go to ingenuism.com and sign up for the newsletter and we will talk to you next time.